Would you take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 8? Let's pick up uh, where we've been studying in this discourse in John, chapter 8, taking place at the temple complex during the Feast of Booths, following Jesus' forgiveness and the woman caught in sin, caught in adultery. Jesus has offered himself to these people as the light of the world. We saw that in verse 12, and Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light that gives life. You know, when Ben was reading the scripture this morning in Genesis chapter 3, he made mention of the fact that by understanding that chapter, we understand much of the teaching in the New Testament. And without that chapter, there's much in the New Testament that doesn't make a lot of sense to us. And so I hope you paid careful note to that chapter as we read through it this morning, because we're going to be talking about it again. And we look at this text and we go further into what Jesus has taught. And that is so true that, you know, the, the Old Testament gives a foundation to understand the New Testament, the New Covenant. But, but more than that, Genesis chapter 3 really gives to us a framework to understand the world in which we live. Why is there evil? Why death? Why disease? And apart from Genesis chapter 3, we are really left just kind of doing some guesswork, wondering where did these things come from? How did they get in the world? How or why am I, as an individual, the way I am? Why do I make wrong choices? Why do I sin? Where does that come from? All those things really find their foundation and their basis in an understanding of Genesis chapter 3. And Jesus really heavily alludes to that in this discourse that is in front of us in John chapter 8. And I want you to notice, let, let, let's pick up exactly where we were last week, and we're going to make a little, we're going to do a little bit of review of what we talked about last week with an understanding of the perseverance of the saints. And then we're going to build from that and go a little bit deeper into some of the things that Jesus teaches us here. Because here is where we really get an understanding of ourselves, where we really look in the mirror and come to terms with who we are as individuals and our need for Jesus Christ. Notice what he says in verse 31. Now, remember, verse 31 obviously follows immediately on the heels of verse 30. Jesus has been teaching the crowd that he is the light of the world. And as he is teaching them in verse 30, remember this from last week, it says, as he was saying these things, many who are hearing him believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews, and then there's this phrase that's very important, what Jews are they that he's talking to? He is talking to the Jews who had believed in him. 
These are Jews who have believed in him. They have heard his word. They've heard Jesus say, I am the light of the world. And they believed in him. And Jesus is talking to them. And he is directing these thoughts to those individuals. And he says to those individuals, if. Notice that. If you abide or if you remain in my words, then you are really my disciples. How do you know someone has really believed in Jesus? Because they remain. They remain in Christ and they bring forth fruit. And so Jesus says, well, just because you have made a profession and you are believing in what I've said really doesn't mean diddly squat. It's if. If you remain. And so we talked about that the essence of the mark of a true believer is that he remains in Christ. Amen. He perseveres. Now notice what Jesus says. If you abide in my work, you are truly my disciple. And you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. Book of Galatians talks extensively about the concept of freedom. It is for freedom that we have been set free, Jesus or Paul says in Galatians. Therefore, do not be entangled again in a yoke of bondage. But Jesus says to them, you will know the truth. The truth will set you free. They answered him, we are the offspring. Now, remember, we made note of this last week, the word offspring. We are the offspring of Abraham. We have never been enslaved to anyone. Now, we know from history that they were enslaved politically. They were under the yoke of Rome. And so we made mention of that, this, this fact last week. These people are not thinking about a political enslavement. They are thinking here spiritually. They understand what Jesus is getting at. They said, we've never been enslaved to anyone because we are the offspring of Abraham. We know the truth. We are free. How is it that you say you will become free? So Jesus answered them. He teaches them a little bit more. Truly, truly, I say to you. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave doesn't stay in the house forever. The son remains forever. Why? Because the son is entitled. He is an heir. He is an heir of the house. The slave is not. So he does not stay forever, but the son does So if the Son sets you free, then you will be free indeed. I know that you are the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me. And why do you seek to kill me? Now remember, he's talking to Jews who have believed in him. And these Jews who have believed in him, in the back of their minds, they still are at enmity with him. And they are longing to kill him. And he says, why? Because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. 
Now, who are they thinking is their father? Abraham. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. Remember this, we talked about it last week. Jesus makes a distinction here between the offspring of Abraham, which is physical descent. They are the offspring of Abraham. They are physically descended from him. But Jesus says here, you are not his children. You are not his child. Abraham is a father of those who believe. And although they have professed a faith in Jesus, it is not a true living faith because Jesus says, you are not of your father, Abraham. You're not his child. And so he says, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. Abraham's works sprang, it tells us in James chapter 2, from his faith. His faith was the root of his works. And so his works were an evidence of true faith. But now you seek to kill me. A man who told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You were doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. They obviously are throwing in his face an accusation about his origin and about his mother. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? That's an important question. Why don't you understand what I'm saying to you? And then Jesus gives the true answer. It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father. Now he goes back to this thought of father. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks from his character. For he is a liar and the father of all lies. But because I tell the truth, you don't believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, here's another question. If I tell the truth, why don't you believe me? Whoever is from God or out of God is born of God, hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is you are not born of God. Last week we talked about the perseverance of the saints. Today we want to talk about the will of man and its bondage. In its natural state that we are bound. Now as we look at this, as we talk about the will and bondage, we're going to try to look at three questions and try to answer them from this text as we develop it. 
Number one is where does this bondage come from? Why is my nature, why is my will bound? Jesus makes mention of that. Jesus is not accusing them. Jesus is not smearing them or just trying to be nasty to them. Jesus is speaking truth to them. Just as Jesus would speak truth to every one of us. In our natural state, we are of our father, the devil. And we will to do his desires. I want you to notice that verse. Notice with me in verse 44. You are of your father, the devil. When we are born into this world and we are a cute and cuddly child, we nevertheless have a sin nature within us that has bound us in sin. And he says, you're your father, the devil, and your will in your natural state is to do your father's desires. Your will. Notice that word, your will. What is the human will? What are we going to understand about this? Now, where does this bondage come from? It comes from what we read in Genesis chapter 3. It comes from a term that we use to describe it. It is this doctrine of original sin. Original sin. And we'll talk about that in the book of Romans a little bit later in the message. But I want us to think about this briefly. That there was an original sin that entered into the world. And from that original sin, all of us have been tainted in our very nature by the imputed guilt of Adam's transgression. That original sin has messed it all up. As God promised it would, right? God said to Adam and Eve, I put you in the garden. You can eat freely from any tree you want. But there's one tree in the garden that you shall not eat from it. And the day you do it, you will die. If you do it, the day you do it, you will die. That is what we call original sin. Now, when we say that, we're not saying that we sin originally, although some of us do sin pretty originally at times, right? He is talking about the first sin, the origin of sin and evil in this universe. Where does this bondage come from? Second thing is this. What does this bondage consist of? What does it mean that I'm bound? Here's another term that we use to describe it. We call it the total depravity of man. Now, when I say that term, we sometimes recoil from that and you say, I'm not totally depraved. I, I, I do some good things. Well, of course you do. That's not what we're talking about. Everybody does some good things. When we say that we are totally depraved, we are talking about two things. One is my entire being as a person has been impacted by sin. My body, right? My body not only has sinful desires, my body also 
is impacted by sin and death in a way that my body will die physically and I get diseases, I get sick, uh, my eyes are wearing down, uh, you know, my hair's falling out, all that stuff that's happening to you as well as we age, my body has been impacted by sin. So too is my will, so are my emotions, so is my mind, every part of my being. The totality of who I am has been impacted by sin. The other thing that this means is this. You may not be as bad off or you may not be as bad as you possibly could be. Right? Some people actually who are not Christians live pretty good lives and are pretty good people. You may not be as bad a person as you possibly could be, but apart from Christ, you are as bad off as you possibly could be. And that is, apart from Christ, you're on your way to hell. So we're totally depraved. My being has been impacted by sin. So that puts me in a state of bondage. That's what Jesus is talking about here. He who practices sin is what? The slave of sin. Do you ever practice sin? I do. So apart from Christ, I am in what? Bondage to it. Okay? You know, don't think, well, that was just the Jews. No. He's talking to me. Right? God's reading my mail. God knows me. Third question is this. How can I be set free from it? Okay? If I am in bondage to sin, and I am totally depraved because of that, I'm bad off, how can I be set free? What did Jesus say? You will know what? The truth. And the truth will set you free. And if the Son sets you free, he says what? You will be free indeed. You will be free indeed. Now let's go back for a minute and talk about four terms that we talked about last week. Now, notice what Jesus said in verse 31. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you remain in my word, you are truly my disciples. And so Jesus said here, we then have an understanding because we want to hear the word of God. And he that is of God hears the word of God. And we remain in the word of God. And Jesus says later in the book of John in chapter 17, sanctify. He prays to the Father, sanctify them by your word your word is truth. John 17, 17. Sanctify them in your word. And your word is truth. So, four terms related to this concept of remaining in Christ. We mentioned them last week and I want to reiterate it to you because this is an important doctrine. We call it the perseverance of the saints. In other words, that if you have been born again, if you are of God, you were born of God, then you will persevere to glory. Now, why are you going to persevere to glory if you truly have been saved? Is it because you're such a good person? Because you, your efforts are going to keep you in Christ? No, we saw in 1 Peter 1, it's because we are kept by the power of God. And so it is God, this is the second term, who preserves us. He keeps us. 
We don't persevere by our own efforts. No, we persevere because we are kept, because we are preserved. And so what we are talking about is this doctrine, we call it eternal security. That in Christ, we are eternally secure. And then when I understand these three things, it gives me what? We talked about this last week. It gives me assurance. That's where assurance comes from. It comes from an understanding of the biblical teaching on perseverance, preservation, and that eternal security. I want to just develop this by looking in Romans chapter 8. Probably most of us know this verse. It's a great verse. We know that in all things, God is working for the good of those who what? Love God, who are called according to what? His purpose. Now, what is his purpose? Why did God call you? Why is God working everything in your life towards good? Why is that happening? What is God's purpose? Here's God's purpose. For those who, man, I want you to notice this word, he foreknew, he predestined. This is his purpose. If he foreknew you, he predestined you to what? Be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. Those he predestined, here's his purpose, he called. So in eternity past, he predestined what? To conform you to the image of Christ, foreknowing you. And so if you were predestined, he called you. Those he called, he what? Justified. He declared you not guilty. And those he justified, he glorified. And I just want you to notice, we talked about this when we studied through the book of Romans a few years ago. As we studied this, we noticed that every one of these things that God is purposing to do is a past tense. He also did this. He glorified you. If he called you, he glorified you. It's in the mind of God. It's already done. God's not worried he's going to lose you somewhere on the way to heaven. And so as we talk about this, it's important to note here God's eternal decree. His decree from the throne of the universe was to bring those whom he foreknew in Christ to glory. And that decree will not be thwarted. That is why we are secure. And so he says in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, I want you to know this is a great verse. He has saved us. He called us with a holy calling. And that salvation and that calling was not according to our works. It was not something we deserved. It was not something we merited. But it was what? According to, here again we see this word, his own purpose and his grace. And it was given to us in Christ Jesus. When? Before time began. Amen. And God is then working it out in our life. It is the eternal decree of God to bring us to glory. Now let's understand man's will. 
He says here, look with me in verse 44 again. You are of your father, the devil. And in our natural state, this is every one of us. This isn't just some select few that are especially bad. Okay, he's not saying to Adolf Hitler here, you're of your father, the devil, although Adolf Hitler was of his father, the devil. He's saying it to me. In my natural condition, you have your father, the devil, and what? Your will, my will, in that condition, is to do what? What my father desires. We need to understand our will. As we read these verses, there are some things that we find out about our will. Number one, it is bound in sin. It is bound in sin. We saw that in the text, early in the text, when Jesus said, the one who practices sin is a slave to sin. We are bound in sin. We are captive. Jesus came to set the captives free. And it is by knowing the truth that we are set free. But my will is bound in sin. That is why Paul says in Romans chapter 7 of himself, the thing that I want to do that I don't do. And I got this war going on within me. This war even continues in the heart of the believer, doesn't it? But there is a bondage to sin outside of Christ. Secondly, all of mankind was murdered in Adam in the garden. That is why he says here of Satan, he was what? A murderer from the beginning. Satan is the original mass murderer. He murdered the entire human race when he comes to Eve and he lays a trap before her and he tempts her. She sees the fruit, she takes it because it looks pleasant. She believes his lie And all of humanity, as Adam shares with her in the eating of that fruit, all of humanity is murdered. That is what we call original sin. And so we are thus, if you were murdered, then you are what? D-E-A-D. You are dead. That is why in Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to look at this at the end of the message, Paul tells us in reference to this text, and you has he made alive, you has he resurrected who were dead in trespass and sin. But all of humanity was murdered in Adam in the garden. Because of that, we are what? We are prone to believe not just a lie, but the lie. Jesus even asked them, if I tell you the truth, why don't you believe me? Because we don't want to. Because it's uncomfortable. We would rather be bound in sin and we would rather be in darkness than be confronted by the light. And that is why John chapter 3, Jesus said what? I'm the light of the world, but men walk in darkness because men love darkness rather than light. Why? Because of the evil of their deeds. We're prone to believe the lie. 
look at all that. We're going to talk about cultural lies in just a minute, but think of all the cultural lies that are out there today. I mean, there's a bunch of baloney out there. And we sit back from that sometimes and we ask ourselves, why do people believe that stuff? Why? Because it's more comfortable. Because we would rather believe Satan's lie than be confronted by God's truth. And because of that, our will is unable and it is unwilling to please God. Notice those two words. Number one, it is unable. Number two, it is unwilling to please God. Three interrelated terms. Now, we talk, you hear a lot of stuff about free will. Sorry, I dropped something. What does it mean that we have a free will, that we're free moral agents? We're going to talk about that a little bit. Now, in your bulletin, it's interesting to me how God and his providence always sets things up. In your bulletin, in the worship folder, we're going through the Second London Baptist Confession. And where we were exactly on this week is a section in the Second London Baptist Confession about will. And so that whole thing is there. It's a whole paragraph. I don't necessarily want you to read it now, but you really need to read it to wrestle with what does it mean? Now, there are three interrelated terms. Jesus uses these terms in this text because right away when I say that you are bound in, your will is bound, we always say what? No, my will is free. I have a free will. We do exactly what the Jews did. I've never been in bondage to anybody. No, my will can choose. Well, what does that mean? Let's think about it. Here are three interrelated terms. These terms are very important. Number one is will. Now, that's not a name, although it is a name. When I use the word will, I am talking about what? Man's capacity to choose, to make a choice. Now, clearly, we have a will. And sometimes we talk about strong-willed people. The truth is we all have strong wills. We just kind of mask it in different ways. But all of us have a strong will. And all of us have a will. And what does it mean that we have a capacity to choose? Because we clearly do. There are three related terms, and these three flow together. The second one is the word desire. It's a Greek word that many times in the New Testament is translated lust. Now, when I say the word lust, we we imagine immediately some yucky thing, and it can be yucky. But what the word just simply means is a strong desire. It's even used in a positive sense in the New Testament. It tells us that God's spirit strongly desires us. It's a good thing. Now, you could translate it because it's the very same word. He lust, but that's not a bad word. He has a strong desire. So what did he say here? Your will is to do what? The desires of your father, the devil. So will and desire are inextricably linked. And so is this third word, nature. Now, when I use the word nature... I'm not talking about getting back to nature and going out in the hills and seeing creation. We're talking about what? My nature, the way I am. 
These three things are inextricably linked. Here's what you need to notice. I make choices based on my desires, right? And my desires come from what? My nature. This is the link. Okay, I do make choices and I am free to make choices. But those choices come out of what I desire. And where do my desires come from? My desires as a human being come out of my nature. So at its very core, what is wrong with me in sin is my nature. Because my nature causes me to desire certain things. And then I make choices based on those desires, correct? You see how those three terms flow together? So there's will, there's desire, and there is nature. And it tells us in Romans chapter 8 that the nature, the man whose nature is in its natural unregenerate state is the enemy of God. That's the core of what it is. And that's why Paul develops in Romans chapter 3 that in our nature, in our very nature, no one seeks after God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none that is righteous, no, not one. And so my nature has been tainted by original sin, by Adam and Eve's transgression. My nature then desires certain things. And based on those desires, I choose. And so I don't choose outside my nature. And so if I'm going to have a, if I'm going to make better choices and I'm going to choose God, then I need to get a what? A new nature. I need to be born again. So those are, that's the interrelationship. Let's do a quick walk down memory lane from Genesis 2 and 3. Number one. There was a covenantal requirement. This is a lot of teaching, but I hope you're listening because it's very important. It's important for you young people because you're told a lot of cultural lies about origins and where evil comes from. It's important you know the truth because the truth sets you free. There was a covenantal requirement that God made in the garden. He said you could eat freely from any tree you want. There's one tree... You shall not eat from it. And if you do, the day you do it, you will die. Did God strike them dead physically for their transgression? No. So he must be speaking what? Spiritually. He's speaking of our nature. You shall not eat of it. If you do, you will die. There is an insidious lie, isn't there? That's why it says here he was a liar from the beginning. What was the original lie that Satan says? He cast doubt on the word of God. There again, we saw this concept of God's word in John 8. Has God said? Has God said? He is, he is, he is casting doubt upon the very word of God and the covenant that God had made. 
There is also a salacious defamation. Satan defames the very character of God when he says, God knows this. God is just trying to keep something good from you. Isn't that kind of the insinuation there? God knows that if you eat of that fruit, then you're going to be like God. You're going to be like God. Every cultural lie, now every lie, but you know, all the cultural lies that are out there today that permeate our society and bring people under continual bondage. And there's tons of them out there. Every cultural lie comes down to these two things that, number one, it is first of all a doubt or calls in question what God said. I mean, every one of them. Every one of these cultural lies that's out there today that is being bombarded at people's minds at its essence is saying, has God really said? The second thing that is true of every cultural lie is, is in an attempt to steal the place of God. No, God knows that if you do that, you'll be like God. And so man in every way is drawn to this concept. You know, we want to doubt what God said. We are prone to believe this lie. We want to doubt what God said, and we want to be like God. And we want to be our own God. And we want to make the world according to our desires. And so every one of these cultural lies out there, in the end, comes down to these two things. Number one, it calls into question what God has said. God made man how? Mankind, he made how? Male and female. That's what God said. That's what God did. I mean, think of it. Here, here's another cultural lie that's going on right now. That is, our government says we can just print money endlessly, and we can live in debt. And under all this debt, and it's not going to get us, it's just a good thing. Right? We can manage it. This new monetary policy that's out there. That's a good thing. What is that yet? Well, it's an attempt to steal the place of God. Can men create wealth out of thin air? No. We can't. Only God can. But we think what? Well, we'll just create wealth out of thin air. We'll just print money and we'll just live on that money and we'll have all this debt and it's not going to in the end destroy our economy. And it's a what? A bald-faced lie. It's going to get us in the end. Okay, so every cultural lie is a doubt of what God said in his word, and it is an attempt to steal the place of God. Let's get back to our nature. I'm, I'm gonna, we don't have time to do this this morning, but I'm going to mention four big confrontations in church history on this issue of our will. And you can do your own research on them. I was going to develop some of them today, but I don't have the time. Number one is two people called, named, one is named Augustine or Augustine, and the other guy is a guy named Pelagius. The conflict, this was the original conflict that begins to happen in the church in this debate on man's will, original sin, and those things. Pelagius taught that Adam's sin did not affect our nature. It only set a very poor example. 
And because it set a very poor example, then his kids made the same choice. And then because his kids made that choice, so do the next kids and on down the line. And because there's this environmental kind of temptation placed on us in the world, we choose evil, but we wouldn't have to. We're not really bound in sin. That's what Pelagius taught, and Augustine says that's a bunch of hooey. Luther, Martin Luther, and Erasmus. Another big debate. Erasmus writes a book against Luther, and Luther then writes a book called The Bondage of the Will. Huge debate. Erasmus was a priest or a monk in the Roman Catholic Church. He compiled all the Greek manuscripts in what is called the TR, the Textus Receptus. Big debate, and there's a lot of teaching about this concept during the days of the Reformation with Martin Luther and Erasmus. Down the road, we have two other big debates that happen. One is in some writing put together by some followers of a guy named Jacob Arminius. You've heard of Arminianism, and I'll get it wrong. They wrote a thing called the Remonstrance. And the Synod of Dort is a rebuttal of the Remonstrance by the followers of a guy named John Calvin. So it's in that time that there's another huge debate and then in the following of John Wesley and Jonathan Edwards. And I don't have any more time than that to just introduce you to it, but you may want to do your own reading on those four big debates that happened in church history. Let's get back to our nature and just think about what Scripture says. Here's number one, 2 Peter. The saying is true. What's the dog's nature? When it pukes, it does what? It cleans it up. Aren't you glad that's not your nature? Aren't you glad that that's not your nature to make that choice? Uh, I'm glad that when I puke, my wife cleans it up. No, I'm sorry. (laughs) The saying is true. A dog's nature is such that when it pukes, it eats it. And then Peter goes on and he says, and also that when you clean up the pig and you just wash the outside of the pig, as soon as you set it free, what does it do? It goes and it wallows in its mire. Why? Because you just cleaned it up on the outside, but nothing happened on the inside. Its nature was not changed. So the saying is true. The nature dictates the choice that will makes, and it's all based on desire. Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, and we'll close. Let's read it, and I'm going to make some notations about these verses because they are very important verses. Paul says to these Christians at Ephesus, exactly what we are seeing, you were dead. You were dead in your trespasses and your sins, and you walked in them, and you were walking according to what? The ways of the world, 
and according to the ruler who exercises authority over the lower heavens, or the prince of the power of what? The air, Satan. You were walking according to his desires and the ways of the world. This spirit that is now working in all who are disobedient. And then he says, we too, all, notice that word all, and he uses the inclusive we. This is the Apostle Paul. He says, we, we too, all, previously lived among them in our what? Fleshly desires. We were carrying out the what? Inclination of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature. By our very nature, we were children who were what? Under wrath, as the others were also. But God, God intervenes. And God is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us. And what did he do? He told us to start being a good boy. Or he washed up the outside of the pig. Or he said, quit going back to your vomit. What did he do? What did he do for us? He made us alive. We were born again. We were made alive with the Messiah. Even though we were dead in sin, you are saved by what? Grace, not by anything that you have done. By grace. Together with Christ, he raised us up and he is already, this isn't when you die, this is your present possession in Christ. You are what? Seated in the heavens. He has decreed that you will be glorified. You are seated in the heavens so that when we get to heaven, we're going to all boast about what we have done, right? We're going to be walking around saying, remember what a good guy I was? No. So that in the coming ages of eternity, he will put on display what? He will put in his trophy case the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith. And this is what? Not from yourself. It was what? A gift. And it didn't come from your works. Why? Because none of us are going to boast. So that no one can boast. Nobody in this place that knows the Lord is sitting in judgment on others who fall into sin and says, well, I'm just a better person than you. Because if we do that, we show ourselves to be a bunch of idiots. Because we are no better. We're all saved by grace. Hallelujah. Through faith. And we are what? We are his workmanship. And we were created in Christ to do good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to walk in them. God gets all the glory. It's not of us. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, it's kind of an ugly picture when we see ourselves for what we really are. Lord, even as Christians, we know that within us is this 
sin nature that we still wrestle with. Even though we've been set free from it, it is not, we're not in bondage to it, yet nevertheless we sometimes willingly submit to it just because of the strength of the old man and the world in which we live. Lord, I thank you that our salvation in no way hinges on our ability. But it was secured for us in Christ before the world began. It's now appeared to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Lord, I thank you that you've been rich in mercy to me. Because of your great love that I cannot understand, I cannot fathom why you would love me. And Lord, I just pray that there's somebody here today that's struggling with their unworthiness. That you'd help that person to get their eyes off themselves, to lift them to Christ, and to be grateful for what he has done to save us. Help us, Father, to trust in Christ and to cling to him alone. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.